Business News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's Thursday, the 17th of June. I'm your host, Jackie Cameron, standing in for your usual Biz News Power Hour host, Alec Hogg, who will be back with you next week. On tonight's show, we hear from Herman Mashaba, the Action SA leader who has his sights set on reclaiming power of the Johannesburg municipality in order to shake up the political establishment. Andrew Moyles, a wealth analyst, shares the details of the latest rankings of luxury residential estates. We also pick up with Sunlum CEO Paul Hanratty on a deal to buy a life business from Alexander Forbes and on why the listed life assurer has been hit with a number of high-profile resignations. And joining us as always on a Thursday to explore developments on the financial markets is our co-host Pete Fulyun, one of South Africa's star value fund investors. First, the market report from Nadia Swart of BizNews. Bradrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. The JC Allshare Index was down today at 66,656. Aspen was up by 5.9% to 173 rand per share. Naspers was up by 2.8% to 3,066 rand per share. DRD Gold was down by 6.8% to 15 rand 22 per share. And Goldfields was down by 6.5% to 133 rand per share. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 7 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 61 to the pound, and 16 rand 77 to the euro. Gold is lower at $1,778 an ounce. Brent crude is higher at $74.28 a barrel. The premier cryptocurrency will put you back 542,000 rand a Bitcoin, and the price of a Kruger rand is 26,270 rand. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Next, we bring you up to date with the latest business news that matters with the Business Flash Briefing. Former ESCOM board chair and businessman Jabu Mabuza passed away on Wednesday night due to COVID-19 complications at the age of 63. Business Unity South Africa President Sipo Petiana said that Mabuza was a role model for all South Africans who became a powerhouse in the country's economy and also occupied several leadership positions in both the corporate and public sectors. This is according to Eyewitness News. Anglegold Ashanti Limited has had a bad year, with the company's lack of a permanent chief executive officer and a suspension of its Ghana mine operations weighing on the stock. This is according to Bloomberg, which reports that shares of the world's third largest gold producer have dropped 35% in the past year, making it the worst-performing stock in the 113-company Bloomberg World Mining Index. Anglogold is a good turnaround stock at this point, being one of the cheapest large-cap stocks globally, said Bloomberg intelligence mining analyst Grant Spohr. Appointing a CEO and resuming mining operations in Ghana would all be positive catalysts and may be enough for the stock to play catch-up to peers, even if gold prices were to flatline. 
gold declined below $1,800 an ounce as the Federal Reserve sped up its expected pace of policy tightening amid optimism about the labor market and heightened concerns over inflation. The metal slipped to the lowest in six weeks on Thursday as the dollar continued to strengthen, the day after Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the central bank would begin a discussion about scaling back bond purchases. Bloomberg reports that this is the first major hawkish turn from the central bank whose deluge of stimulus has been critical to bullion's strong performance since the start of the pandemic. The central bank also released forecasts that show they anticipate two interest rate increases by the end of 2023, sooner than many thought, which helped boost the dollar and U.S. bond yields hurting gold. And that was your business Flash Briefing. I'm Nadja Swart for Business. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. Pete Fulyun, a leading investment specialist, joins us now to share his insights on the news that affects your assets. Pete is our regular Thursday Business Power Hour co-host. He is a value fund manager with CounterPoint. Pete, before we get into the details of some of the news developments this week, perhaps you could just recap for some of our listeners who are new to the Business Power Hour. What does a value investor do? We tend to buy assets at a discount to the present value of the future cash flows they will we expect them to generate. Um, and the cheaper the better. Um, the less the less you pay for fu- for anything in the future, the better because we feel that the future is so unpredictable and unforecastable that um, we don't want to pay a lot for a for a rosy picture. Um, so we try and pay as little as possible. And every now and then you get opportunities to do that in different sectors and different assets. So you're a bit of a bargain hunter. Exactly, yeah. yeah. We like it when things go on sale. And where do you see things at the moment? Do you think things are on sale now or a bit overheated in South Africa? Uh, no, I think things are still pretty much on sale. Um, you know, asset prices are up quite a bit off the lows of last year, the pandemic uh, caused lows. But uh, they're not valuations are not stressed by any, by any stress of the imagination. I mean, I, I think valuations are – reasonable and, and in some cases very, very cheap. So we still think there's quite a few bargains around. Um, South Africa still is very much not uh, the flavor of the day. Um, most Africans would um, rather invest offshore than onshore, and understandably so. Uh, but I think that the pendulum has probably switched, uh, moved too far in one direction, probably moves needs to move back a little bit at least to the other direction. So before we get into the details of the South African stocks that have been in the news today, the S&P 500 was on course to drop for a third consecutive day, according to the business premium partner, the Wall Street Journal. And there's some talk that maybe the alarm is being rung that uh, the markets have hit the top in the U.S. What is your view on that? Do you watch that at all in terms of the macro trends? Yeah, I, yeah. So, so we try not predict uh, what's going to happen. Um, we'd rather play the cards as a dealt in front of us uh, and try and buy the assets that are cheap. Um, so what the U.S. market is going to do, I, I have no idea. If I had to guess, I would say that equity markets generally in the world will continue to go up. Um, I think fiscal conditions and monetary conditions are such that uh, it will be conducive for earnings going forward. And I think interest rates won't go up a huge amount. So I think that will be – good for valuations. Um, So I think um, equities are are fine. Um, Personally, uh, we prefer to invest in places outside the US. We think the US is relatively more expensive than many other markets. 
we're finding the bargains, the things that are on sale are, are in other markets, not necessarily the US. But just as a as a point of departure, I think equities are fine. I think they, you know, they it's, it's a fairly comfortable place to be. La but Africa, has that been on your investment radar at all, Pete? Actually, no, uh, but I was fortunate enough to listen to the interview that Alec had with uh, Brian. Is his name Brian? Yes. Uh, Brian, Brian Van uh, Rooyen, yes. Yeah, Brian Van Rooyen when he announced his foray into, uh, into, um, um, into alternative uh, <laughs> medicine, if you can put it that way. Um, and I think there's a space for that. I, I think that's a growing trend. I think um, it is quite popular. Uh, the only thing I would say is that it's hard to see any barriers to entry, at least in the short to medium term. Um, uh, there's no brands yet. And as brands get established, maybe there will be barriers to entry. But right now, I think it's very much a free-for-all. So today there was some news that uh, this cannabis-focused company is at risk of losing its license, its listing on the JSE because it has failed to comply with JSE listing requirements by submitting its statements on time. How seriously should shareholders take this development? I think that's serious. So I, I think if a company, a company needs to explain very carefully why they're not producing financial statements on time, and uh, you know, and to the extent they haven't done so, I think they should do so as quickly as possible because it is quite serious. If you can't produce financials, that leaves question marks around the viability of the business. Is that one in your portfolio or not yet, Labat? N- no, it's not. It's not. And as a value investor, would you see this kind of opportunity as a, as a bargain opportunity or would this really be time to be cautious? Uh, look, I mean, if a company is struggling to produce financials, um, you you probably want to be cautious. I mean, Steinhoff is an example, case in point, that for two, three years couldn't produce financials and the share price just kept going down uh, all the way to, I think, at 1.50 or 60 cents. But there was a time there where the market was too negative. So I think uh, you probably have to wait Um and um, and uh, and evaluate the situation as time goes by, but uh, it's not something you'd run into right now, no. And Pete, what about Sunlum as an investment opportunity? Is that in your portfolio at all? No, it isn't. Uh, but it's one I'm having a good look at. Uh, it's uh, it is a very well run, well managed business. It got quite cheap during the pandemic. I still need to get my mind around how the insurance business dynamics play out into the long-term future. Um, they have had a tailwind of declining interest rates for quite a long time, which um, which helps the business. Um, I think if interest rates start going up over time, maybe, you know, maybe that's a bit of a headwind. I'm not quite sure. So it's something I'm thinking about, uh, but it is definitely something to evaluate because it is probably one of the, Better insurance companies in South Africa at this point. I spoke to Paul Hanratty earlier uh, mm. about the deal in which Sunlum has bought uh, the life business from Alexander Forbes for a hundred million rand. The Alexander Forbes business has annuity income of one billion rand, uh, which seems to be a bit of a bargain for Sunlum. Do you think that these kinds of deals will help boost Sunlum's uh, value in the long run? Look, in Salem's life, that's quite small. It, I don't think it's going to, it's, it's not going to touch sides. I don't think it makes a big difference. I think it's the right home for that sort of business. Seeing that Alexander Forbes has stated they want to be a capital light business. Um, life insurance is a capital heavy business. One needs to have adequate regulatory capital set aside when you write policies. So I think the natural home is Sunlum, but will it change the valuation of the, of the greater Sunlum business? No, it, I don't think it'll make a difference whether they paid a bargain price or not. I don't think it makes a big difference. 
And you mentioned earlier that you thought Sunam was quite well run. Sunam's been in the news uh, this week for a number of high-profile resignations, Helena Conradi, Lizay Lambrecht, and then there were one or two others. Do we read into these resignations that there might be a few problems with the management, or how would you view those kinds of uh, developments in a business when you view a, a company as to whether it's well managed or not from an investor's perspective? Yeah, so I, I think succession planning is is part of uh, the management's uh, responsibility in any business, and in a big business like Sunlam, I think I'd be very surprised if they didn't have proper succession planning in place. And it's also the natural life cycle. You know, um, people get in a job and they develop and they uh, and they do a good job. And after 20, 25 years, they want to move on to do something else, um, maybe something completely different. That, that, and that's quite natural. And I think in all the cases that we've read about in Salem, um, these, these people have done great jobs in their lines of businesses and they probably want to move on to something else. And, uh, you know, Paul's come in uh, from the outside. And he probably also wants to build his team around him. Um, so, you know, there's uh, in, in fresh blood in a business, a big business like that is also not always a bad thing. So I think it's it's a natural thing. It's part of the life cycle of any, any business, especially big businesses. I remember interviewing you years ago in the height of the, the property bubble and everybody was buying mm. property and you were saying, yeah. oh, hold back, you know, you could get your fingers burnt. Uh, on today's show, we've got an interview with somebody on estate living. Do you think residential property and in particular South African luxury lifestyle estate properties are a good investment? No. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I rent. I don't, I don't own residential property. I rent. Um, I think it makes no financial sense at all. I do think it makes um, it makes sense from security and uh, you know from a sense of belonging and all those issues. You know, I think owning a home um, makes sense from that, but as a financial investment, I don't think it makes sense at all. No. Can you just elaborate on why you don't think it makes sense? Well, the cost of home ownership is extremely high. If, if you take the frictional cost of buying and selling, all the brokerage and uh, taxes and everything you have to pay, number one. And then the cost of maintaining a house is is huge. It's it runs two to four percent per annum of the value of the house, and it tends to be lumpy as well. Uh, there's always a pipe breaking and a and a roof that needs to be fixed, and a geyser breaking, and there's always stuff happening, um, and it needs to be painted every now and then. And the other thing that happens to house after about 10, 12 years, it becomes quite old, and you need to remodel to keep it sort of in pristine condition. So all those things need to be taken into account. It's not only what you pay for it and what you can sell it for. There's a whole lot of costs that happen in between that uh, people tend not to take account of. I suppose the flip side is for many people it's easier to buy property because they can borrow money from the bank, whereas it can be much harder to build a portfolio of shares. And, you know, right now a lot of people are doing well in the stock market, but it's probably a bit of a blip. It's actually quite hard to find stocks and make money out of them, as I'm sure that – you found yourself from time to time. Yeah, from time to time it's hard, but the same goes with property as well. I mean, the the big advantage, is, I, I, I'd say the big advantage that property has, there isn't a big board in front of your house flashing its price every day, you know, where the price is up 1% or down 2%. You know, if that were to happen to everybody's house, they'd go crazy and they'd be buying and selling houses left, right, and center. And unfortunately, that's what happens in the stock market. You know, the stock market is up a percent. People think they've done well. It's down 2%. They think they've done poorly. But over time, if you just collect the dividends and you and, and you sit back, um, the stock market does have a lot better than the property market, uh, as long as you don't react to 
violent price moves, you know, sell at low points and buy at high points, then you'll do fine out of the stock market. But psychologically, very difficult because those prices are going up and down every day. And it, it's sort of, it's like a casino. It's flashing lights and, you know, there's stuff causing you to take action and you think you're in control when you take action and you're not really. Um, so that's the problem. And the, the great advantage for most people in owning a house is that, that uh, call to action is not there. That price going up and down every day is not there. And that's a great advantage. Yeah, I don't think I'd sleep at night if I saw my property value <laughs> flashing in front of my eyes. And, Pete, we had some sad news today. One of South Africa's captains of industry, Jabba Mabuza, has died from complications of COVID. What do you think about the whole way that the government's dealing with COVID? Well, there's not a lot positive I can say about that. I think the vaccination process is a shambles. Um, I think lockdown is a terrible thing. I, I, I don't think there's any space for lockdowns. Should be any space for lockdowns. Um, I think uh, if they could if, it, uh, if they could focus the effort they put on regulations, regulating people's behavior, rather put that effort into rolling out the vaccines, everybody would be a lot better off. So there's not a lot of good to be said there. And I think the way it's being dealt with, and, and not only South Africa, I mean, the UK is probably even worse, I mean, the way they dealt with it. I just uh, The only positive in the UK is actually rolling out the vaccines. Um, so it's it's actually a sad state of affairs in South Africa. But, you know, what would one expect? Uh, that's probably part of the course. And we spoke to Herman Mashaba this week as well, and he mentioned that he really wants to shake up South African politics. Uh, and for, for him, South Africa is much worse under Cyril Ramaphosa than it ever was under Jacob Zuma. He says at least we knew that Jacob Zuma was a thug. What is your view on South Africa? Do you think things are going to get better? Um, we have this we have this innate ability to to make things better in South Africa, uh, and it goes cyclically. Uh, sometimes it gets better and sometimes it gets worse. Um, our politicians don't help the cause, unfortunately. Um, uh, but, you know, to, to get real change happening, I suppose you have to hit rock bottom. And with load shedding and the problems of the vaccination rollout and so on, you know, are we at rock bottom yet? I don't think so, but uh, we're probably closer to that than anything else. Um, so... Maybe people are starting to realize there are problems here and uh, we could see some real change. But, yeah, again, if one looks at trends around you uh, on this continent, then I guess you can't be too positive about positive political change. It's just not going to happen. Before we close our conversation, how do you feed these kinds of developments into your investment planning? Do they do they play a role at all? Oh, very much so. I, I think when you are planning your investments as a South African, you have to make sure you have a diversified portfolio. Even though South African assets are cheap, it would be foolhardy to have all your assets in, in South Africa because of the poor political environment, uh, the, the poor, the lack of trust between business and government, um, uh, lack of infrastructure development, uh, unavailability of uh, reasonably priced uh, energy, all those problems um, – has a dampening effect on economic growth. And if the economy isn't growing, then companies will struggle to do well. Uh, so right now, I think assets are quite cheap. So, you know, whatever your allocation to South Africa would normally be, which would be a portion of your portfolio, a small portion, you'd probably want a little bit more right now. But I would not put all my money here. I, I think that'd be foolhardy.
the big move today is in the gold shares. They're down quite a bit, and I think they're probably giving an opportunity to pick up some some uh, some companies that are generating very good cash flows at, at lower prices. But again, daily movements are neither here nor there. Um, I don't think one should react to them uh, as a matter of course. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you with us here on the Business Power Hour, Pete. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to me, Jackie. Paul Hanratty is CEO of Listed Life Assurer Sunlum, which this week bought Alexander Forbes's life business. Paul, 100 million rand for a business getting premium income of something like 1 billion rand. Sounds like you've got a bit of a bargain there. Yeah, well, you need to understand that at the moment, Jackie, um, uh, group life businesses are actually all making enormous losses with the COVID pandemic. Um, but yes, in the long run, we would expect it to make uh, decent profits. And of course, you know, we're laying it on top of a existing big business. So um, there'll be some capital synergies as we pull the risks together. But I think what it does is it um, means Alexander Forbes can focus on being capital light and take something off their balance sheet. And, you know, for us, obviously, we've got lots of capital. It's um, it's great for us to have to have this. You've been on the acquisition trail for a while, and there's been a bit of talk that you've been wanting to snap up some asset management firms. Can you tell us a bit more about how those deals are progressing? Look, we don't ever speculate about whether we are or aren't doing um, anything on that, or well, on any on any acquisition front. So we really can't comment. Is it fair to say that you that you are looking for opportunities with your cash pile? <laughs> No, look. I think we, we, you know, we've we've made it very clear that um, you know if the right opportunities came along, uh, we have a strong balance sheet. We're, um, you know, we've made it clear that we we are acquisitive on on average, and that you know opportunities are likely to present themselves. But you know that would be in any you know in any of our core businesses that would be true generically. Paul, we were speaking earlier this week with Stephen Nathan, who, as you know, is a respected investment analyst. He flagged up a pattern of deals that seemed to swirl between an old boys club from Sunlam. And now you, you've come in from the outside, but some of these deals are continuing. Can you just explain what happens behind the scenes with the, the former people who worked at Sunlam, who've moved to African Rainbow and so on? How do those deals actually work and how do you manage them so that they aren't tricky? Yeah, look, I think um, you've asked a, you know, a very generic question. I mean, many of us have been in in many different places. I think in this particular instance, what is true is that um, the CEO of Alexander Forbes, you know, used to work at Sunlam, um, actually in, in precisely, you know, the part of the business that looks after this, and so it is somewhat natural that. Um, you know, he he would think of us and we would, you know, have relationships. And so you identify opportunities between, you know, people who understand these businesses. So, um, you know, this this is really, you know, got nothing to do with an old boys network. I think if you talk about the specific deals that happened between um, Sunlum and African Rainbow Capital, these were part of a 2018 um, package deal that was done by um, by Sunlum. Uh, it was connected to the original um, BE uh, equity raise for the Saham transaction. And um, so basically the asset management deal 
And a couple of the other deals that followed on from that with, with ARC are really a remnant of that deal, which was really before my time. And they've just been, it's just been a question of closing off deals that were already, um, you know, supported by shareholders, you know, as long as December 2018. And then you've also been in the news or your company's been in the news in connection with a number of high-profile resignations. We heard that the Suntime CEO, Lizé Lambrechts, was, is leaving at the end of the year. Satrick CEO, Helena Conradi, says she's stepping down before the end of the year. We also heard that uh, Salam Investment Group CEO, Robert Rue, has plans to retire. Can you just tell us why this is all happening now? Yeah, so look, I think just to correct you, you use the word resignation. These are not resignations. Um, you know, these are people who are... Um, you know, they get into that time of their life when they are going to retire naturally. And, um, you know, in Helena's case uh, from Satrix, she's been involved in Satrix for 20 years. I think she's going to continue to be involved with us in some of our businesses um, post going, but she wants a slightly quieter and different route. And I think one should respect that. Um, the same is true of Lizay. Lizay, you know, is only going to retire sometime during the course of next year, but Suntime is a big listed company in its own right. Um, and so it's natural that we would want to signal well in advance to the market and give ourselves the opportunity to, to follow a process to make sure that we get uh, a suitable replacement. Lizay uh, will, if need be, stay on for a period of time to help any new person settle in. Um, so it's far from being a, you know, a resignation. And again, in, in, uh, in Robert's case, you know, he's also reached that stage of his life where he wants to do, to um, take things a little bit easier. And he feels that if he stays, he's got to, you know, work really hard for the next five years. And he's got some different plans to that. So, you know, the point I've made to people is that Sunlam has been blessed to have a very good, stable and mature uh, management team, but the problem with that is that you know a lot of people reach retirement at all around about the same point in time. So we always knew that there were going to be people who would would move on. But fortunately, we're blessed with talent, and you know it creates opportunity and renewal uh, for the organisation. Uh, I'm interested to hear you saying that Helena Conradi is retiring because she's only in her fifties, and when we spoke to her on the Business Power Hour recently. She said that she was taking a short break and wanting to get fit, but then, she, but that she had a lot of uh, room still to build her career. So she didn't sound like she was uh, re- retiring at all. Well, as I mentioned to you, you know, there's a very good likelihood that Helena will continue to work with us after her break um, going forward, but in a in a slightly different uh, space to the one that she currently occupies. Do you think that you need to look more actively for other women to lead different divisions in your organization, or is gender not an issue in your industry? Look, gender is a massive issue in um, financial services everywhere in the world. It's um, maybe, you know, it's hard to compare, but um, it's it definitely is an issue for us in South Africa. It's It's one of many issues in South Africa. Uh, relating to the diversity of our workforce. And so for us, you know, that is a very, you know, important issue, is the whole issue of diversity in our management teams and our boards and so on. And it's something that we take very seriously. You've been listening to Paul Hanratty, CEO of Listed Life Assurer Sunlum. 
Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's Thought Leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Herman Mashaba is leader of Action South Africa. He joins us now to discuss how his party is shaking up the candidate nomination process as it gets set to contest local government elections in Johannesburg, Shwani and Ekuruleni. Mr. Mashaba, tell us why your candidate election system is groundbreaking. Well, uh, I think, you know, thank you very much, uh, first of all, and uh, to, uh, good afternoon to the listeners. I think when uh, I left uh, the uh, and resigned as the mayoral candidate of the city of Johannesburg, uh, being frustrated, what created the problem was uh, when the D expected that me to save political parties instead of uh, saving society. That's when when we launched the People's Dialogue. One of the issues uh, which I put forward upfront to to South Africans when they wanted me to start my own political party. I wanted electoral reform, electoral reform to really be one of our key priorities where civil society are the ones responsible for the election of their public representatives. Why? Because so that uh, you are not uh, uh, saving uh, political party ahead of civil society. So where well, the system is groundbreaking in the sense that it's uh, it's direct democracy. It allows the residents uh, actually electing their ward councillor. It's responsible for deciding who becomes the mayor. It's responsible for the direct or direct election of the party president. So it's really groundbreaking in the sense that all political parties, as you are aware, they are the ones uh, electing uh, public representatives behind closed doors. So your party is different in that the, the people who are voting for the party also get to choose the candidates, whereas a party like the ANC, the ANC will choose the candidate. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think you, if you take uh, the ANC as an example, uh, I mean, for the ANC to really be a public rapper, you have to be a compromised uh, person. You've got to have small onion things. Whereas in our particular case, uh, you can really be a close friend of mine or be closer to me. Unfortunately, that's not going to help you. At, uh, what at the end of the day would really make you a public representative is going to be, depend on what you do for society because uh, the society, the community is the one responsible responsible for you actually holding that position. Do you see this as an important shift in trying to avoid a culture of corruption? Without any doubt, uh, yeah, it is groundbreaking. The primary systems, as you are aware, all the successful democracies all over the world, uh, I'm talking about really successful ones. This is a direct democracy way for you to really be a public representative, uh, be elected by the people, not by political parties. What other measures does Action SA have in place to avoid corruption? Because clearly this is a huge issue for South Africans and we're all really fed up of state capture and the erosion of the economy because of corruption. I can assure the people of South Africa, uh, Action A, give Action SA the mandate within six months of uh, us taking over this government. The Scorpions will be back and will be back with more 
powers, more the, the powers to operate outside the political environment. Actually, where I can tell you, looking at how our NPA, so, it is so compromised, so captured by the ANC, what we are proposing as Action SA is that uh, for you to be the head of the NPA, you are going to be elected by the people. For whether at national, provincial, and local level, we want our prosecuting authority to be independent elected by the people so that if you say political parties people must remove you you must go out there and go and uh, contest uh, like the politicians for you to actually be the head of uh, of of of, uh, of the NPA like right now what we've experienced over the last 26 years heads of um, of of our nation, of our prosecuting authority are compromised individuals accountable to politicians you seem to focus quite a lot, though, on local politics, and a lot of these problems are seen to be problems that need to be solved at a national level. Can you tell us a bit about how you're going to make inroads into the national sphere? Well, like uh, the example I've just given you of the prosecuting authority, this is not a local matter. This is a matter of national uh, competency. Um, and without obviously having an independent uh, judiciary, independent uh, prosecuting authority, independent law enforcement agencies uh, uh, all over, the rule of law will never really work. One of the core values of action is a, it's, it's application of the, rule, of, of, the, of the rule of law. We are, I believe uh, very strongly that it is still possible uh, to hold national government accountable uh, by using the courts. Uh, I've got an experience in the city of Johannesburg when I was a mayor. 34 billion rands of uh, fraud and corruption where the current mayor is supposed to be in jail doing at least 15 years with uh, more than enough evidence uh, for, to, for, to, uh, for putting him behind bars. He's protected by the, by the National Prosecuting Authority. When I was the mayor, I was in the process of actually taking these matters up uh, with the courts as to why this uh, this uh, this person uh, this man is is not arrested. Unfortunately, because of my differences with the DA, I left. But uh, we that is why we are now asking people of Johannesburg to give us. Um, uh, the, the, the majority so that we don't have to really be negotiating with other parties uh, to implement some of our policies where I believe very strongly that in the event that the MPA is captured, we will un- uncapture it through using the courts. A business commentator recently wrote in an article on business that the only positive thing about South Africa he sees right now is the climate, such as the state of the country's economy and the high unemployment, crime and other problems. Do you agree well, it's, it's really quite unfortunate that uh, we, we have to really be honest uh, with ourselves and actually face our reality. We, we're in a dire, dire situation. Uh, we, with our country is uh, leaderless. I think we've never in the, uh, in the 27 years had a weaker uh, president than uh, the current president, Salah Ramaphosa. You know, Jacob Zuma, as much as he was there to just stealing, but uh, he provided uh, some kind of uh, corrupt leadership. Whereas right now uh, it's a free for all uh, that's why the level of corruption in this country right now it's at its worst because everyone is stealing uh, because they have no respect for Sir Ramaphosa because they know he's the, he's an indecisive leader he's going to let everybody steal so we're in a really very difficult situation and uh, the only people who can liberate uh, this country is to actually destroy this virus called the ANC and uh, they can start 
start with the, the local government elections uh, later this year and finish it off with a second chap in 2024. If South Africans are not going to remove this corrupt, evil ANC government out of power by 2024, then uh, then it'll be a different story. I don't really believe that um, South Africa will survive another five years under ANC government past uh, 2024. Herman, I see you've had a lot of support for your political party and you've got nine candidates who are coming forward. What kind of fresh leadership are you seeing coming through the ranks? Well, I think we, we, we leave it to society to make decisions on, 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 on our leadership. Uh, it, uh, it, it is not up to me uh, who's going to, to be our councillors. It's not up to me to decide in 2024 who's going to be members of parliament. South African uh, society is the one that's going to decide the future of this country. So I'm leaving it uh, to uh, civil society. I'm leaving it to South Africans to take back power from politicians by this direct uh, uh, democracy system of the primaries that we have introduced. I want South Africans to know that Action SA is a vehicle for you as South Africans to take take back power from the politicians, take ownership of uh, the future of this country. Don't leave it to Herman Mashaba. Don't leave it to Action SA. Use it as a vehicle to take back power because for allowing every day you allow the ANC in, in government, it's a day and an opportunity lost. Are you finding a lot of enthusiasm for people who want to be candidates for Action SA? Can you tell us a bit about what's been going on behind the scenes, uh, growing your membership? Well, I think, uh, you know, for, for, for us as Action SA, uh, this primary system uh, that we uh, introduced uh, in Gauteng in the three metros has been an overwhelming experience. It's been a very inspiring um, uh, experience where ordinary South Africans are the ones who decided uh, who must become um, the, the, the public rep- representatives. And you can imagine in the midst of uh, this COVID, in the midst of uh, people were under impression that the new political parties don't have a future and look at us as Action SA. We've uh, actually revolutionized political system in the country. We've given South Africans hope because it is only through hope that we can uh, actually save this country. How can people participate in this process? I see you've got an important date coming up on the 26th of June. What are you hoping residents in these areas will do? Well, uh, the hope is not only on the 26th. Uh, actually, the starting next Monday, the 21st, um, uh, our our voting system is going to be open online. Any South African can vote, more especially for the three metros uh, in Gauteng. That's Johannesburg. Uh, if you are a resident of the three metros, Gauteng, sorry, Johannesburg, Ikurulene, uh, and Twane, it is up to you. To, to vote for, for, for the candidates that have put themselves uh, forward. You were the one who can decide who becomes uh, the, the mayoral candidate uh, for, for your, for your city. That is why I keep asking South Africans, uh, please uh, don't really give uh, the future of this country to politicians. ANC has let us down and let us down spectacularly. So take back, uh, um, the power from politicians and take ownership. And whoever you vote uh, uh, them in, whether it's action as a, in the event they don't uh, perform, vote them out the next time. Don't wait 26 years or 27 years to uh, to experience the uh, kind of abuse that we have suffered uh, um, under the ANC government.
There's a perception that ANC voters will vote for the ANC regardless of what the ANC does. They seem to have a blind loyalty. Can a smaller party like yours really do anything to fight against the mighty ANC? I think uh, you, you, you have to really be blind uh, to uh, honestly, totally blind for anyone, for anyone to can believe uh, such a nonsense that ANC will will uh, will always maintain its growth. Look at the, the voting population of South Africa, 36 million South Africans. Look at the last elections. Uh, ANC uh, only voted by just under 10 million people. Total people who came out to vote, uh, 17.6. 18.3 million South Africans did not show up uh, to vote because they did not really have an alternative. You look at the, elect, uh, the ANC performance over the last three elections. In, 20, in 2009, ANC received 69%. Um, to, to uh, 2014, dropped to 62 percent. Look at uh, what happened in 2019 with uh, Ramaphoria, with a with a with a billion rands of uh, CR17. They took out 57 percent. So, and you look at it uh, the, in terms of their support. ANC, it's a dying rural party. The facts are there, not uh, from me. Uh, you can just go into the uh, um, uh, IEC. Um, the, the, election results. Uh, go and have a look. Uh, ANC is a dying rural party. So they'll be lucky come the next elections in 2024 to get 7 million uh, uh, voters. So I think the opportunities there for parties like Action SA to, to give inspiration, give hope to South Africans to come out and vote. ANC will only survive for as long as uh, People don't uh, believe that there's an alternative. And us as action as a, we are positioning ourselves uh, to them to give them hope that we that alternative. You've been listening to Herman Mashaba, leader of Action SA, which is shaking up the candidate nomination process as it gets set to contest local government elections. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. Andrew Moyles is an analyst at New World Wealth. He specializes in keeping a close eye on how the world's wealthiest people spend their money. Andrew, you've compiled a report on the top lifestyle estates for 2021 and quite a few South African estates there. Uh, Some of the people who are listening to us might think you're a bit biased because you are South African. Why are there so many South Africans on this list? Uh, Yes, well, South Africa is is a pioneer in estate living. So... so, um, just because of various aspects of the South, South African uh, residential system over the years, uh, residential estates and lifestyle estates have been big in South Africa for quite a long time, whereas in a lot of other countries, they've only recently become big. Uh, for instance, in places like Mauritius and Dubai and uh, New Zealand, they've started to take off in the last 10 years or so only. Your number one estate on your list of top tens is an American estate. Can you tell us a bit about why that one is the best in the world? Uh, yes, the Yellowstone Club, it's, very, it's quite well known, uh, especially to people who read uh, some of the luxury magazines in America. Uh, it's, it's a second home hotspot to a lot of the wealthiest people in America. And uh, it's, it's, the houses there start from about $10 million a house. And they've recently introduced condominiums that are about from about $5 million. 
So it's only really for the super rich. And it's about 15,000 hectares. It's got two large rivers that flow through it. And it, it offers uh, fly fishing, skiing. It's got its own private ski slopes. So it is quite unique in terms of the residential and lifestyle estate space globally. And possibly uh, it could set a model that maybe other lifestyle estates in America could follow. Which rich people live there, do we know? I, I don't want to mention names, but yeah, no, there are a lot, lot of quite no, well-known uh, wealthy billionaires in America that, that have, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if they live there, but they, ha- they certainly have second homes. It is, it is based in Montana, so it gets quite cold during the winter. So I'd imagine most of the people uh, only spend three, four months there maximum. And then on the list of your top ten here, you've got Valdivie in South Africa, Stain City in South Africa, Fancourt. How did these estates beat all the other wonderful estates that rich people in South Africa have to choose from? Yes, so that, so that there is a tough choice. So there's obviously a lot of really good estates in South Africa, like like those three you mentioned, and Pazula, Steenberg, Arabella, Simbiti, and and where, uh, Waterfall Equestrian, and many others that we mentioned in our release. Uh, we mentioned about 14 uh, top estates in South Africa in the release, actually. Um, and in terms of those ones, I would say it's mainly uh, the facilities they offer and and uh, the, the the size of the estates. Um, so there are obviously three quite large estates. Valdivie obviously encompasses Pearl Valley uh, as well, and it's it's one of the biggest estates and certainly very very top end. And the same goes for Stain City and Fancourt, um, whereas maybe some of the others aren't quite as uh, uh, big and they don't have as big an offering in terms of activities and facilities. For some reason, I always think of Leopard Creek as the most exclusive estate in South Africa. Uh, why isn't this at the top of your list? Well, we, we have mentioned Leopard Creek. We, we did a study last week, actually, on the top wildlife estates in South Africa, or wildlife or eco-estates, and we mentioned Leopard Creek as one of the top five uh, wildlife estates in South Africa, along with Royalston and uh, Majajani and uh, Gondwana private residences and Liquetti. So, so that's kind of a separate space. The wildlife estate space is, is a bit different from eco estates. So we didn't want to kind of uh, mix them up too much because I, I think it can become quite confusing to readers and, and to potential buyers. I mean, in terms of Leopold Creek, it's, it's obviously, it is an estate, as you mentioned, uh, but it, they, they actually, um, sometimes it isn't immediately apparent that it is an estate. Uh, if you look on the web, but, but obviously having been there, I, I know it is an estate and it's certainly very top end. You're right about that. Andrew, we've had a lot of talk about South Africa's wealthiest people immigrating because tax is really onerous. There's a shrinking tax pool. There are also a lot of concerns about the economy and politics. Are you not seeing a shrinking pool of potential buyers and residents for estates in South Africa? Well, what's interesting, a lot of these top estates, like, like the ones Valdivie, Stain City, Fancourt, Pazula, uh, Arabella, a lot of them have foreign buyers, uh, and a lot of the foreign buyers that buy into these estates are ex-South Africans. Or, uh, so, so it is quite a, a popular thing for even South Africans that do leave the country to actually keep a, a home in, in, in these estates for security reasons and various other reasons. Obviously, they have to be quite wealthy because they they tend to be uh, – there's obviously levies and things like that, um, 
Although a lot of these bigger estates, the levies aren't as high as you think because they have economies of scale because they have so many houses and a lot of them have apartments now. So, so the, the levies aren't, are sometimes lower on these really biggest luxury estates than they are on some of the smaller uh, sort of townhouse developments. Um, so, yeah, now in terms of wealthy people, there are, obviously has been an outflow of wealthy people. But, but as I'm sure, sure you know, a lot of South Africans that leave tend to keep at least one home in the country, often in places like, uh, you know, in a, in a place like Vancourt or in, in Thettenberg Bay. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of estates there as well. And, and in terms of having freestanding homes, when you are someone who, who has obviously left or has homes elsewhere, it's quite difficult to, to have, have a freestanding home. So a lot of people buy apartments or they buy into lifestyle estates if, if they are on that route. So I don't think that the fact that wealthy people have left South Africa has really damaged these estates that much. I think it's probably damaged the freestanding homes more than it has these estates. And in, in terms of, uh, obviously, there's a big move within South Africa away from freestanding homes of people that live here towards estates and towards luxury apartments. So that, that's kind of created the demand that, that still exists. Are these people who buy into these estates, or is there also a market for the rental sector in these lifestyle estates? I think there's definitely a rental sector, especially on the apartment side. Uh, and I, a lot of estates, a lot of the estates are actually starting to put apartments in. I mean, Stain City has, has got some very top-end apartments that they've put in recently. Val de Vee, uh, put in some uh, top-end apartments. I think they were de- designed by Stefan and Tony about five years ago, I think, the Polo Village. And, and uh, that, that did very well. So I think a lot of the estates are moving towards apartments. I think some of the existing estates that, that have been going a long time, they've tried to move towards apartments, but some of them, there is some friction with the residents because they don't want them to suddenly change the model because they bought into something 20 years ago. But I think that the general feeling is that a lot of the estates, even the ones that are well-established, are going to have to start putting apartments because that's what people want. I think um, it's it's cheaper to maintain. It's l- less uh, work to to clean an apartment. It's it's better to have it as a second home. It's obviously safer. There's only one door in an apartment. There, there's a lot of reasons why people are moving towards apartments in South Africa, and that obviously applies to outside estates in places like Mshlanga, uh all those top end apartment blocks. But also within estates, a lot of, a lot of the new estates that are coming up. Um, uh, like the new uh, Brookfield on on Royal on on in in Joburg on on the on the golf course, which has just recently been finished. That's apartments, and it's it's an estate. So that seems to be the new model. Andrew, we often hear from investment advisors that we shouldn't confuse lifestyle investments with proper investments. What does your analysis tell you about whether? these estates are good investments or not? Well, we've obviously been looking at the estates and we've been visiting the ones in South Africa for the past five years. So, so we got to know them pretty well. And, and I, I would say pretty much every estate that we've ever mentioned in our rankings over the, over the five years has always shown price appreciation. Obviously, there's been drops in, in the RAND. So the RAND has depreciated heavily over the last decade. So 
Um, but it, but it, one interesting thing is the top performers, I would say the two standouts that I've seen in the last 10 years in terms of apartment blocks slash estates um, is the Pearls and Mschlange has shown massive price growth over the last 10, 15 years, that, 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 that development. And also uh, there's a small apartment development in, in Plettenberg Bay called De Meermen that also showed quite strong growth, which was strange because the rest of Plett didn't show that growth. So just, and there's a lack of apartments in Plett because they haven't allowed them to build apartments because uh, they don't want skyscrapers on the front. So that's an interesting one as well, although it's much smaller than the Pearls. But, but those, we, we did a study about two years ago and we looked at that and those ones really stood out in a way. Um, that they had shown quite strong price growth over the last decade, whereas a lot of the other, um, and, and along with a lot of other luxury uh, de- uh, apartments, whereas the non-apartment developments hadn't shown nearly as strong uh, a, a growth. But, but generally, I mean, all, as I said, all the, all the estates, all the top-end estates have shown price growth over the last 10, 15 years, quite strong price growth. There are ob- obviously some exceptions that have run into some financial difficulties and have been able to maintain the estates and things like that. But, but generally, estates, the top ones, have shown good price growth over the last 10 years. Is that good price growth over and above inflation? Do you have any figure there, any ballpark figure? We look at a lot of things in U.S. dollar terms during, when we do our Africa Wealth Report. So we, we put out our Africa Wealth Report with our Fraser Bank uh, about a month ago, and we looked at uh, the residential market in South Africa over the last 10 years, and there's been about a 30% drop in, in, in dollar prices, U.S. dollar prices, because the rand has depreciated from about 7 rand to about uh, 14 rand over the 10-year the period from 2010 to 2020. So that's, and so the, the rand growth has been about 40 50%, but because of the dollar depreciation, there's been a 30% drop. But then we looked at some of some of the uh, areas and some of the apartments that have actually shown positive dollar growth, um, and a lot of these these estates did come into that. Whereas even in dollar terms over the last ten years, they had shown uh, growth. So in terms of inflation, that they would obviously be beating inflation if they were um, tracking the dollar. So so yes, there there have been certain complexes where if you had bought in in 2010, you would have made money. On, you would have made more than inflation and you would have made more than the dollar. But it's, uh, there's obviously not that many of them. And a lot of them would have, you would have just possibly broken even in dollar terms. But then if you had had a freestanding house, you would have lost money in dollar terms almost certainly over the last 10 years. Andrew, only one estate in Mauritius on your list of top 10, yet we hear that Mauritius is a very popular destination for higher net worth individuals who want a holiday home. Why only one estate? Yes, so so uh, Mauritius, we, we mentioned Anahita and Mauritius, so that's what, one of the top ten on our list. So that's one of the more established estates in Mauritius. There are a lot of newer ones that have come up in the last few years in Mauritius. I think particularly appealing to uh, wealthy uh, foreigners that are buying in uh, to, to get residency because you've obviously got to spend about $500,000 You've got to buy a place for five hundred thousand dollars plus. They might have might have lowered that slightly, I think, recently, uh, but in order to to get residency. So 
there's no point in buying a cheap place. So what, what's, what, what happened is they built a lot of these fancy um, – a lot of them were apartment developments as well. Some of them had golf courses, and, and they basically – foreigners bought in so they could get residency. And they often weren't that big. So they were maybe 120 square meters, and you were paying about $6,000 a square. So you were paying similar to kind of Clifton prices, Bantry Bay prices. So, and that's, that's still the case. Um, but I think the reason we chose Anahita from Richards is, as I mentioned, it's very well established. It's been going for about 15 years. And, and so we, we kind of uh, – some of the newer ones uh, are, are less established, and they're not fully complete. So – that was the reason that one uh, fitted in. Yeah, so our top 10 was the Yellowstone Club in USA, Valdivia in South Africa, Bighorn, Bighorn Golf Estates in the US, uh, Stain City in South Africa, Kukui in Hawaii, uh, Fan Courts in South Africa, Anahita and Mauritius that we discussed, Jeremiah Golf Estates in Dubai, and then Jack's Point in New Zealand, and then Toscana, Tesco, Falfi in uh, Italy. And so th- those were the top 10 that we chose. And you know, Anahita was obviously one of those. Andrew, before we close the conversation here, the Jumeirah Golf Estate in Dubai, uh, you know, Dubai has attracted a lot of attention because it's become a home to business players like the Gupta family and, and their friends escaping from justice in South Africa for state capture. Is this the type of golf estate that attracts fugitives from around the world? Oh, that's the, oh, I can't answer that one. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, yeah, look, uh, it's certainly, uh, we, we've done, we actually did a study with a, with a U.S. company called Webster Pacific where we actually looked at the fanciest areas in Dubai in terms of income. And the Jeremiah Golf Estate was one of the top ones, along with the Palm and the Front. And uh, I think there was one other area. So uh, whether it's attracting uh, uh, dodgy individuals, I don't know. It's certainly attracting wealthy individuals, that's for sure. And it's one of the top uh, golf estates um, in the Middle East, if not the top one. And it's got a few golf courses. It's quite big. So they offer apartments, townhouses, and houses. You've been listening to Andrew Moyles, analyst at New World Wealth. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.